I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Nina Kraus, is a scientist, inventor, and amateur musician who studies the biology of auditory learning, its connection to other sense modalities, to physical and mental health, and especially to music and language. A professor at Northwestern University, she describes her recent book, Of Sound Mind, as her love letter to sound, how sound connects us, its biological impact on making us, us, how it affects the world we live, and its implications for education, health, and social policy. So Nina, welcome to Delving In. Thank you so much for having me. So it sounds like we could spend the entire hour talking about what you love about sound, but could you give us a couple of the more unusual reasons? Well, sound is a fundamental part of who we are, the world around us. You know, I became interested in sound, I think, just by, by being born and being born into a home where mo more than one language was spoken. And my mom was a musician. And so I think very early on, I realized that sound was very important. And as I became a biologist, I realized that from a biological perspective, sound is um, evolutionarily important. It is our way of, of connecting with the world in so many ways. Sound is, is fascinating. It is under-recognized, but I have recognized its importance and it has, um, it, ha it has certainly captured my attention. I mean, I have been fascinated by the interpenetration of sounds outside the head and the signals inside the head, electricity, that uh, make us a part of the world that, that, that we live in. Of course, there's the old philosophical conundrum, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, but there's no one there to hear it, is there a sound? And I, I think most people would say vibration is not exactly the same as sound, that sound requires um, creation of meaning from it. Well, you know, maybe we can define things many ways, but I, I think that we really go awry, both in science and in philosophy, when we try to come up with a yes and no or no answer, you know, to the tree in the forest. Well, it, it depends. And this is what I, you know, my poor students who are always asking for the answer, there hardly ever is an answer. And it almost always is, it depends, and it depends on context. And so, you know, even, you know, we could take apart your question and, and, and depending on the context, the answer would be yes or no. Well, I think that's a, that's a very um, commendable and, and more interesting way of thinking of science is that it's not a definitive thing. It's, it's we approach the truth, but we never get there. And, and the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Absolutely. I, and I, I think it, it, it goes counter to the whole idea of science to be thinking that we have the answer because we, we, never, we never have the answer. It is always uh, a process and we will never, one of the things that I love about science is the feeling that is knowing that, that we will never understand actually much of anything. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I think that there's a tremendous humility that comes with being a scientist. And uh, sadly, I think 
some scientists or some popular perceptions of science is uh, full of hubris. You know, science says this and that and the other as though this is the the last word. And it it never is. And you know, we're 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 just trying to find some some stable planks on which to stand on today. So maybe one of the alternative definitions of a scientist could be a lover of questions. Sure. A lover of questions and also a lover of, of, of discoveries, you know, because we do have answers. We have little, we make these little discoveries. And, you know, to me, it is really important to pull together converging evidence. We, we have discoveries and, and, you know, there's never a definitive study about any aspect of sound, for example. But, you know, and it's one of the reasons in, in, in my lab, which we call brain volts, in, in my lab, uh, when, we, when we observe a phenomenon, I want to see it again and again and again shown in different contexts. And then I want to see, you know, others in the world have ideas that and findings that resonate with that. And then, you know, eventually we form an opinion of what is truth for the moment. So let's talk a little bit just as a way of kind of laying some groundwork about the physical aspects of, of hearing, not necessarily the, the meaning part, which we'll get to, of course. But how does hearing work? How do the ears and the brain turn vibrations of air into sound? And what sorts of information is detected? So the, the first part of my book of Sound Mind is how sound works. And, and also I, I encourage anyone who reads the book, first of all, read the introduction. And then there are four chapters about how sound works. And if any of that is a little more detail than, than you are looking for, just make sure, you know, skip the, the details, read all the personal stories. Science is a deeply personal endeavor. Read all the personal stories, look at all the pictures. There are 80 illustrations. And make sure that then you read the core of the book, which is our sonic cells. And that is very easygoing relatively with respect to, you know, just being very easy to take in and, and absorb and read. Now to your question, how, how, does, how does sound work? Well, sound is vibration. Sound is, is the vibration of air. And it can also, we can have underwater sound. It can be the, uh, the vibration of, of, of water. It comes from movement. It comes from vibration. Uh, we have evolved ears that take these sound waves and um, deliver the signal, the sound wave to our brain. It's a, it's a transduction of vibratory information of air into electricity because electricity is the currency of the nervous system. And so through a, a, a whole intricate, beautiful, beautiful process, these sound waves get transformed into brain waves that are um, carried from our ear to many parts of the brain. And you can think of the ear to brain pathway, it's called the afferent system. And then there is an, an even larger system called the efferent system, which is the brain to ear pathway. 
And, and why does the ear have to listen to the brain? Of course it does. Um, we hear, first of all, we hear with our brain. Think of, of Beethoven, he was deaf. And he was able to compose some of the best music we've ever tried to play and certainly listened to. And some of his very best music was what he composed latest in life when he was profoundly deaf. But importantly, so the hearing brain is vast and people don't really realize this. They either think about the ear or they think about the auditory cortex. And there's so much more than that. So the hearing brain engages how we think. So that involves what we know, our memory, what we pay attention to, how we think, how we feel, our emotions, how we integrate our other senses together, and how we move. And the fancy way of saying that, or the more formal way of saying it, is, is that, that hearing engages our cognitive, sensory, motor, and reward networks in the brain. So this is a massive network that is part of, this is part of how we hear of our hearing system biologically. I'm a biologist. And what I try to do in my book is to gather the best biological evidence I know of and to uh, provide my current understanding of how sound works, what a sound vibration is, and how the nervous system makes sense of it. I think a very important part of this story is the fact that sound has ingredients. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute, actually. I just want to mention, or just to clarify, with the afferent and efferent uh, pathways, you know, that, that's very clear when it comes to things like uh, sensation is going from the sensory organs to the brain, and then movement is going from the brain to the, to the muscles. It's really interesting to think about a sense organ itself having afferent and efferent pathways. And I think it really, uh, like immediately brings to mind that it's not just vibrations, sound registration in the brain. I think that's the way I think uh, maybe a naive person who hasn't studied the science would think of it, that it's just sort of like absorbed in, somehow. But what, what your book gets to is that it's, there's so much interconnection. And of course, that's true of the brain in general. I'm really happy to see that the metaphor for, for the brain is no longer circuits, now it's networks, which is better. I mean, probably we'll get to an even better metaphor eventually, but that the, it really speaks to the interconnections. It's not just uh, a flowchart. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, the, the interconnections are absolutely key. And that's one way in which that the, you know, the brain is not exactly a computer. The brain-computer analogy is wrong. The, the, the brain works nothing like a computer. And, you know, computers are, you know, I guess historically we've always, uh, because the brain is so complicated, we've always kind of tried to uh, align it with something that we know. Right. So in psychology, for instance, during Freud's day, the, the, the mind was like a steam engine, you know, because that was the most advanced thing back then. A steam engine, then a computer. But the fact is, it is nothing like a computer. We know how computers work. We do not know how the brain works. Uh, the mind is a, it, 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 you know, we, we could spend the whole hour just talking about why 
this is a, a faulty analogy. So let's talk about one little aspect of, of your book that really, I think, opens up a whole world of, of meaning. And that's that the amplitude of vibrations in the air is not identical to perceived loudness, which is really interesting because I think, you know, common sense would say, yeah, however loud the, uh, the sound is, that's what's registered in the brain. But it's not so. And it, it gets altered through experience. So, so could you talk about that? Well, that's the philosopher in you, too. Yeah, because I, I, I think and, and, and as much as, you know, here, here's my shout out to thinking interdisciplinarily, um, you know, first of all, that's where I, I think I belong. Um, you know, I grew up in Italy. I grew up in New York. Um, I don't feel like I'm a New Yorker. I don't feel like I am an Italian. Uh, but I, where I live is at the intersection. And I found that scientifically, I live at the intersection of disciplines. And I think of the brain as a tremendous intersection of different ideas. I was probably being philosophical without even meaning to be. I was really thinking about the auditory processing involved. And let me, let me just quote from your book a little bit. Um, Any neuron in the auditory cortex due to tonotopic mapping has a preferred pitch, sound frequency, to which it responds best. Other frequencies might have little or no effect on its neural firing, and still other frequencies, usually those that closely flank the preferred frequency, might actually inhibit its firing. That's sort of a mouthful, but uh, it, it speaks to the whole kind of conditioning of the auditory processing based on experience. Absolutely. So um, what is marvelous about our brain is that, that it does change with experience, and that is a fundamental property of the brain so when, when I first was a student in neuroscience, I recorded responses from an individual auditory neuron. And I played a sound and that auditory neuron responded. This was in the rabbit. So there's a rabbit, there's the sound, there's the neuron. And what happened is once I taught the animal that the sound had a meaning that it was associated with some form of reinforcement. I had the same rabbit. I had the same sound. I had the same neuron, but the response of that neuron was different. So yes, of course, the perceived loudness of a sound or the perceived any quality of a sound is shaped by our life and sound. So you, you make some surprising comparisons between hearing and vision, including some in which hearing comes out as the superior sense. So how is that? Well, you know, it, it, it's superior in terms of speed. It's faster because, and, and this is just based on, 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 on the physics and the physiology because... Right, the processing is faster, even though the sound, sound waves are slower. Yes, sound, uh, the travel of sound waves is slower than the speed of light, way slower. But in a sound wave, sound occurs in the moment and it is fleeting and it's transient. So that the brain has to very, very, very quickly keep up with that signal and the sound will change microsecond to microsecond, the sound wave. The brain also has to pick up those microsecond changes. So it has to process information very, very, very quickly, whereas a visual object is generally stable, or even if it's moving, it's moving at a rate generally much, much slower than a typical sound wave. 
and it's different. You know, it's it's different. It's a different sense. Um, but and they're also they, they they reinforce each other and affect each other. But sound and and this I think I think Stuart, this will interest you a lot from your perspective in psychology. Is that sound connects us? Sound connects us in in a way that is different from vision. You know, you and I right now we're having a conversation. It's very much in the moment. There is this back and forth that is happening. If if we were sending images to each other, it would be a different, you know, you 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 can prepare your your image, you can re, you can represent it and you can send it exactly how you want it to be seen whereas sound inherently and the way that we communicate with each other is a deep, deep, deep way of connecting, and and you know, music, of course, is is a way of connecting us and connecting us with with the world, with with uh, the instruments, with and also with each other. I mean, if if you've ever sung harmony with someone, I mean, talk about this back and forth, this connection. One of of my heroes is Ian McGilchrist. And he is a um, he's, he's a psychiatrist and a writer, and he wrote a book called The Matter with Things. And uh, he has this concept of betweenness, which he doesn't really specify having, you know, he, it's a much more global concept than how I'm using it. But I feel that sound embodies the concept of betweenness better than anything else that I know of. And so it connects us. And, and at this time also of this connection in the world, you know, more than ever, it's really important to be connecting with sound. And there are so many forces, such as noise, such as our visual, uh, visually biased world that conspire against that kind of connection. Visually biased, meaning that it's considered the more important sense and, and it's emphasized in terms of and, and also the whole kind of notion of appearances versus reality and that's also a, a lot of visual metaphors absolutely yeah so and and, and you know more and more we're, we're attached to our devices that you know we're, we're we are looking at and, and another a problem is that our world is increasingly noisy so I don't know if you can hear in the background, if I stop talking for a second, there is a leaf blower. Oh, is there right now? I hate those things. <laughs> I don't hear it, no. Yeah, it, it's horrible. But you know, we are forgetting as a species, we are forgetting how to listen because we often can't hear things. And also, if you've ever been in, the, in, 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 in your kitchen and the refrigerator turns off, or truck outside your, your, the leaf blower turns off. Yeah, my father used to fall asleep to the TV and you turn the TV off and then he wakes up. But, but usually when that noise goes off, you take a sigh of relief. You know, you're calm, you go. Right, it's a relief, it's a relief. You hadn't even noticed that it was on, but you have been stressed. I just wanted to mention one other sort of difference between vision and hearing. That's vision, especially the center part of the vision, the fovea or the macula, is is very tiny. And this, the brain sort of makes an assumption that there's a whole world out there. 
but we can only focus on a tiny amount of it at once. Whereas hearing, we're surrounded. That's right. We are surrounded. We can never turn it off. You know, I, I think that it is so much a part of us that we don't we don't recognize, even though we are surrounded by it. It is underrecognized and underappreciated. One of the reasons, really, Stuart, is because sound is invisible. Right? Sound is invisible. Well, and vision is inaudible. <laughs> yeah. Well, sound sound is is invisible, and you know, like many of the world's most powerful forces, like gravity. You know, but and, and it, it, it's pretty important, but it is underrecognized because you can't see it. Uh, let me just uh, quote from your book again. Uh, we do not just hear sounds. We deeply engage with them as we make sense of sound. Our hearing brain is vast. Hearing involves sensing, moving, thinking, and feeling. Until recently, we didn't see it this way. So I'm just wondering, what was the old understanding of hearing, and how did that paradigm change? Well, it's the old understanding, but it's, off, it's, it's still a, rather a current under understanding. And it is a consequence of our rather specialized uh, way of doing science. And, you know, we have people who study the ear, we have people who study the auditory cortex, we have uh, people who study the visual system, you know, they're, they're, and in terms of our, our visual bias, there was an institute at the National Institutes of Health for vision 13 years before there was one for hearing. And, and even now the hearing institute is shared with balance and taste and smell. We have organizations that are specialized. We have meetings that are specialized. And to quote Norm Weinberger, who was a, a wonderful biologist who studied auditory learning, uh, he said, nature doesn't respect disciplines. And, you know, and, and I, I think that that is, is so, it, it's so correct. Um, and yet the way we do science is this way. And also there has been this idea that the senses, we get information from our senses, they're outside of us, and then they go through this afferent system from, say, ear to brain. And there has been only, you know, during my scientific lifetime, very much of an appreciation of the fact that we have an efferent system, that the whole uh, hearing brain is affected by different parts of, it, it, it is part of, um, of, of the brain as a whole. And so this, this, if you will, downstream processing is, as they say, more vast than, than the pathways that go upstairs, and it is very tied to learning. Um, and as animals become more evolutionarily complex, the efferent system becomes is more and more developed. And, and if anyone is interested, this was after I wrote the book, I came up with the BEAMS hypothesis, B-E-A-M-S, uh, published it in uh, a 400 word perspective in um, hearing research. But it basically has, it talks about this, this, this concept of B stands for brain, E 
stands for efferent. And so the fact that our experience through the efferent system sculpts what eventually the afferent, so the ear to brain, what we hear, what our default system hears, so B-E-A-M, that then constitutes our memory for sound, S, B-E-A-M-S. Uh, an example of this is if, if you're asleep and I say the sound of your name, if I say Stuart, your brain will respond to your name. Even though I'm asleep, that's, that's a really fascinating part of your book is about how the brain is conditioned by sounds even if they're out of awareness. Of course, but, but they are conditioned by the sound to meaning connections. You learn that this is a sound worth listening to. It's deeply, deeply ingrained in your hearing brain's memory. Right. So you have both the conscious learning and the unconscious learning, but they, they seem to need each other in a way. And, and, and you talk about attention as being a, a very key part of, of learning in general, of course, but learning in the hearing brain that what we, what we pay attention to is what gets emphasized. Yes, and, and I'm so glad you brought up conscious, subconscious, and attention because, again, these are not um, hard and fast uh, divisions. You know, what is conscious and unconscious is, you know, this, this is, this is a, 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 an intertwining of brain activity. And, you know, it, it is really through our experience, who we are, what we have become based on our life and sound and what we are dealing with at the moment, that is this combination, it's a combination of what is conscious, what is unconscious, uh, what we are paying attention to explicitly. I mean, there is focus attention, but there's also this global attention that is going on as well even though we're not that conscious of it, it's, it's happening. And of course, the more you have experience with particular kinds of sounds, the more you can notice. And that's, sort of, that, that's kind of uh, an increase of richness at, with experience. So to use an, an example for music, I mean, a musician or even a music lover will easily be able to pick out the instruments in an orchestra even without looking. But someone who's never heard an orchestra says, what's that? You know, or, or they may not even notice that there are two instruments playing the same note. And that's why, and so the last chapter in my book is my call to action. Because the sound mind is so, is, is, is shaped by what we do. We are what we do biologically. It is really our responsibility to try to strengthen the sound mind by engaging in activities like making music, like learning another language, uh, like being a, a bird watcher. Um, you know, all of these things really strengthen the brain's ability to make sense of the many ingredients that are present in this invisible thing that we call sound. Yeah, so you have something called auditory discrimination, but you also have something called auditory understanding. And one, one depends on the other. Reciprocally, you know, reverberantly. Yeah, because I, th I think in, in the popular mind, if there is such a thing, you know, we think of 
hearing loss as being just a problem of the ear of, of you know, there's just sounds are not being registered, which is, of course, very true much of the time. But there's also all the processing that happens beyond the ear in being able to discriminate, for instance, sound from noise. You, you dive into very interesting material when you talk about outside noise versus inside noise. It was really fascinating. Yeah, again, you know, signals outside the head, signals inside the head. So on the one hand, you have you've got sound, and then you have the electricity inside the head. Now, you think about noise, you have, you know, the noise of the garbage trucks and the noise that I, I define, I define noise. You can, people can define it any way they want. I define it as unwanted sound. You know, so it, it is, for example, walking in a forest, there's lots of sound but it's wanted. So I, I would not call that noise. But if you have what I call noise in the world, acoustic noise, and then our brain, our, our brain is always on. And so neurons are always firing. So there is always electricity. And as a biologist, we can measure how neurons fire. We can measure either you know, by measuring responses from individual cells or groups of cells in humans, we can measure, you know, as I'm talking with you now, the neurons in your brain that respond to sound are producing electricity that if I had scalp electrodes on your scalp, I would be picking them up. But even when there is no sound, there is electrical activity. And so the perception of sound or the processing of sound has to be done in this backdrop of what we might call neural noise, because you have this random neural activity, this electricity, think of it as static, static on a radio. Right. I was thinking actually of like a shortwave radio, like you see in the movies and, you know, they're, they're desperately trying to get the signal to come through and then faintly you can start to hear it. Exactly. And, and, and so this is very much, this is very important. And also just so you, you, you can tie it to something functional, what we have learned is that if you have linguistic deprivation, so for example, if you have not been read to a lot as a child, if you have not made sound to meaning connections, the signature, and this is one that often dovetails with poverty, the signature of poverty is a noisy background, is this noisy brain. Um, as we get older, we can, not everybody, but typically there is increased noise in the brain. If you are a healthy athlete, so we have, um, you know, we're doing experiments now we have a, a, an NIH-funded grant that is allowing us to look at all of our Big Ten, our Division I athletes at Northwestern University. So we're measuring the brain activity in um, these 500 elite athletes. And one of the things that we have learned is they have incredibly quiet brains. They have very quiet brains, which then enable them to make sense of their environment to, I think, a heightened degree. You know, I wonder whether it's some uh, kid who grows up in a deprived environment, I'm wondering if some of that noise is actually uh, scattered auditory attention because of the higher probability of threats. 
So, you know, one parent is, let's say, trying to practice reading, if they're lucky, <laughs> with them. But meanwhile, the other parent is making noises that indicate that they're drinking and they might become violent soon. And then the child's auditory attention is being divided between the, the reading and, and the noises. So it's, it's noise, but yet it's not noise. It's actually very meaningful information, but it's, it's, it's detracting from the meaningful interaction and information from the reading. Yeah, and, and that's why it is so complex and, and why, you know, uh, some of, of these ideas about neural noise and also the effects of noise in the environment, some of the best studies have been done in animal models because you can control some of the things that you are talking about in, in a complex environment that every child is faced with for better and worse. Right. So I wonder if we could just, uh, for the sake of inclusion here of, of the, the most important concepts, talk about the main components of hearing, you know, pitch, timbre, duration, intensity, and location, also roughness, melody, harmony, harmony, rhythm. You don't have to necessarily go through all of them, but, uh, you know, I think with vision, it's a little bit easier to think, you know, you have, you know, hue and you have intensity and you have uh, not as many variables, it seems. Yeah, and you have you you have, you have the color, the size, the texture. You you know, and it's all you can just see it, right? It's obvious, and sound in the first place is invisible. On top of that, sound consists of these ingredients, and the ingredients are things like pitch. How high or low was that sound? Uh, you know, think of a piano. There is timbre which is determined by the harmonics in sound. And so the timbre is what helps us distinguish one instrument from another when we're playing the same note. Right, or, or a man's and a woman's voice at the same pitch, you can still tell which is the man and which is the woman usually, not always. Yes, well, that is true. And also the harmonics. You know, we always think of the harmonics and timbre as being important in music, but as you said, it's important in speech, not only from you know telling a talker apart from another talker, but the difference between a, a ga and a ba and a ra is it, it, the harmonics carry information about what sound was being spoken. So there's that. There are another ingredients are FM sweeps, so the change in frequency over time. So as you go from a consonant to a vowel, duh. And that's fr fre frequency modulation, right? It's frequency modulation, FM, frequency modulation. Then there is timing. Oh, my goodness. And so, you know, as we, we spoke before, the hearing brain is the temporal expert of the nervous system. And there's so much time information in an auditory signal. And the hearing brain is really, really, really good at picking that up. And one of the metaphors that I do use in my book is, you know, so we have all these ingredients in sound and they have to enter our brain. And I think of the brain as, as, as think of, of it as a mixing board uh, where you have all these different ingredients of sound and you can tell, I mean, we can actually do this. I can measure sound processing from your brain and then I can see how good a job your brain is doing at processing FM sweeps, timing at elements, harmonics, uh, the pitch, all of these things I, I can see just in, in a given, uh, often a given sound, a, a given complex sound like da, we, we do a lot of work with what I call the mighty da, has all the ingredients 
in, in, in just that one syllable. And so we can see how good a job, where the strengths and the bottlenecks are for individual people. And importantly, one of the very important discoveries that, that we have made is that the ingredients that are important for language, so that it would be the harmonics, timing, uh, FM sweeps, these are the same ingredients that are strengthened by people who make music. So there is this partnership. In fact, one of the chapters in my book is called Music and Language, a Partnership. And you can really see how having a musical education can help a child read better. Right. It can help with verbal skills in general, which is really, um, really something. You know, I, I, of course, as a psychologist and as a radio interviewer, I'm listening to the musicality in a person's voice. And of course, I like to, to hear that because <laughs> that's going to make it much more interesting for the listener. But also, someone with a musical voice knows how to use the intonation of speech to emphasize meaning. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, what, when, once on Martin Luther King Day, my husband and I listened to the I Have a Dream speech. And what makes that so wonderful is the intonation and his use of pitch and tone and prosody. You know, if, if I was reading that speech, you know, you'd be looking at your watch, you'd be, you know, going to be done. Um, but, you know, you're completely riveted when you listen to him because of exactly what you're talking about, the sonorous quality of his voice that he as a performer is able to utilize and, and engage and connect. Do you think that can be learned? Oh yeah, of course. So I sometimes wonder about politicians who don't have enough musicality and, and it hurts them. And I think of Hillary Clinton, if she were just a bit more musical and had, was more of an actor in that sense, she might've won the election. No, I, I think that's a really important part of, of the connection that we have with people through sound. So you, you talk on your book a lot about birds. Uh, it's a whole chapter about that's really wonderful. And about how birds share with humans the ability to, to create melodies. Although you make it very clear that birds are not humans, even the ones that talk. <laughs> you know, they don't have the flexibility. But how did you get interested in birds? And, and as an audio scientist, I mean, you, you must walk through forests and listen in a very different way to, than the average person. Well... I mean, I think we all listen in our own ways based on our life and sound and how, you know, what we've learned to, to listen to and for. Birds are, first of all, it's beautiful. It's beauty. It's like art. Uh, it's a form of art to, to be listening to, 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 to birdsong. And there are wonderful biologists who study birdsong and birdsong and the way that, that birds learn their songs is a, a very good model for at least some aspects of how humans learn songs. And, and a lot of what birds do, which I think is very similar to humans, and there are not that many species that really imitate each other sonically. So, you know, birds, the, the baby bird will imitate uh, his daddy bird. And there is this back and forth that, that happens. Babies, human babies, you know, we, we go back and forth with human babies all the time. They, they love to imitate you and you imitate them. And that's 
part of how language is learned. Your dog, your dog understands if you're jangling your keys or if you say, let's go outside, your kid will say, out, out, outside. If your dog started saying outside, that would be unusual. Right. And, and, and of course, you know, the, the musical aspect of speech, I, I, I've heard it or read that it, that may have predated the, the denotative aspect of speech. And my, my daughter, who's a musician, when she was a, a, a one-year-old and she wanted to go for a walk, she had learned the intonation and the rhythm. She said, wah, 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 walk, as if it was a whole sentence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, and we learn the prosody of speech, the, the, um, the music of speech before we learn the words. So even developmentally, just as your daughter beautifully, fabulously illustrates. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that we learn early and fast and even evolutionarily, you know, the, the book by uh, Stephen Mithen, The Singing Neanderthal, he makes, he's an anthropologist and he makes the case for uh, music having evolved before um, spoken language. And, and he, you know, he makes a good case for that. But I think we see it in the development of our children. So with this last segment, let's talk about how your research interests are not limited to the purely theoretical, but also have important real-world applications. And could you just give us a, just a kind of concise summary of your methodology, the FFR frequency following response, and what a revolution that has made in the understanding of sound? Yeah. So one of the of the chapters in my book is called The Quest. I write about this journey that me and 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 very notably all of my my colleagues at Brainvolts have taken because you know I've always been interested in being able to use sound processing in the brain in a practical way, in a way that can really help us address questions in society. And so that depends on being able to measure sound processing in the brain with unprecedented precision and accuracy. And inexpensively, without having to use an fMRI, which is an extraordinarily expensive machine that I guess the uh, FFR uses brain waves, right? So like an, like an EEG, much, much less expensive. And, you know, the EEG is not very good for detecting thoughts, but for detecting processing, pretty good. Excellent. Really, really, really good. And so, you know, by putting on just three scalp electrodes and having someone listen through earbuds to carefully crafted sounds that have all of those ingredients that we spoke about, we can see how good a job a person does processing these sounds. And um, we have learned that there really are signatures in groups of people. So there is a musician signature, there is a signature of poverty, there is a bilingual signature, there is an athlete signature. So this is, you know, we can look at, at group data, but we can also look at an individual person, which is, I think, the holy grail. The FFR is being used increasingly in the world. My, my hope is that it will become a standard of care, uh, for example, for athletics to be able to determine, is this brain who has just had a concussion, is he ready to return to play? In a child with a language disorder, 
Um, he's having trouble in, in the classroom. He doesn't seem to be understanding and paying attention to what the teacher is saying. He's missing things. To be able to show, well, yeah, of course he's missing things. He's not processing these elements of sound. To be able to make a case for music education, why music education is so important for developing language skills. To make a case for music medicine, why music can be so helpful with medicine, for example, because of the tremendous tie between sound and memory and between sound and movement. So, you know, you see connections with dementia, you see connections with Parkinson's disease, and the world, the, the kinds of choices that we make in our world can be informed by how we have learned that the brain processes sound in different conditions. And importantly, I think really importantly is what we began with, which is the fact that, that the, the hearing brain changes based on our life and sound. You know, you asked me, you know, the, the volume of a particular sound is going to sound differently, different to one person or another, or in one context or another. And this is based on our life and sound, which is why it is crucially important, I think, that we really think and make decisions for ourselves about our life in sound. You know, how are we going to spend our, our time? What kind of a sonic environment do we want? What about for our children? What about for our education? What about for medicine? What about for our society? These are things that I think the biology can help inform why it is so important to uh, take charge a little bit. Right. And then with the aging of the baby boom generation, uh, hearing loss is becoming an ever more important uh, topic. And of course, finally, hearing aids are going over the counter. It was about time. But uh, I think you make a very good case that there are things that can be done that that, uh, a person can do in addition to hearing aids. Hearing aids are helpful, but there's so much more. And that was really fascinating. Oh, I'm I'm so glad that you brought that up. I I think that we could do so much of a better job. I mean, most hearing health care, first of all, like you will not be asked if you've ever played a musical instrument, if music is important, where do you, what is, what is your personal communication uh, in sound life happening? People, you know, think they can buy a hearing aid and they don't realize so many people give up in frustration when they put the hearing aid on and it doesn't fix the problem because it takes a while for the hearing brain to learn to make sense of this new input and they need to be counseled. And, and you know, I, I think of the best hearing healthcare as in, in the context of, of the model of a personal trainer. You know, this is something that if you, you start losing your hearing, you want to go to somebody who is up on all of the latest technology, can decide what is the best for you and can hold your hand in this continuous process of your development, the development of your brain and any device that you, that, that you might be using and, and changes that you can make in your everyday interaction with, with sound. This is, is tremendously important. 
And then you also mentioned a kind of training that a person could go through. I don't know if it was learning an instrument was one possibility, but I think you may have mentioned some others too that can actually improve the brain's ability to discriminate sound. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, just living in a, in a quieter space will, will help you make sense of, of the important sounds. Yes, of course, playing a musical instrument and singing counts, and you don't have to be good. You know, playing a musical instrument for various biological reasons really enhances sound processing in the brain. Learning another language, anything that you can do, you can do um, auditory training with a computer that can help you hear certain aspects of sound that you weren't hearing. But then as you, uh, you know, uh, we, we did some work with a program um, by uh, Posit Science, that an auditory training program that we did with older adults and where aspects of sound were broken down so that elements that you might not hear when the sound is presented, for example, very rapidly, when you slow down the sound, you can hear these elements and then, you know, you eventually speed things up and, um, and, and your brain learns to pick up ingredients that it couldn't hear before. Are, are there programs that are commercially available or, or not yet? Well, um, you know, I, I think that there are, I, I don't know, the, the Posit Science is part of the, uh, the brain fitness group um, that was something that, that was uh, started a long time ago by Mike Merzenek, someone who I, I speak about in the book, who has been very interested in, in auditory plasticity. For, for kids, there is, I think it's still called Fast Forward, and, and that is a computer-based program that has, has had success all, all over the world. Um, so, you know, there is computer-based auditory training, and I think that this is an area that could be improved, and, uh, but it's already there in the market. And, and then there are assistive listening devices that can be, should be used more pervasively, I think, in, in certain classrooms uh, to help enhance such as uh, giving the teacher a cordless microphone and giving the child who has too much internal noise uh, or has grown up with too much uh, extraneous sound earbuds that connect to the microphone so that they have a kind of advantage of uh, a clearer and more direct sound. And, and what we've been able to show biologically is in some of these kids whose response to sound has all kinds of bottlenecks at the beginning of a school year. So you know, we measure their response to sound without the device. At the end of the school year, we measure their response to sound, again, without the device, but they've had the benefit of listening to the teacher's voice through the device all year. And lo and behold, they're just like the bunny rabbit. Their response to sound now uh, has much more richness than it did at the beginning of the year. And they, you don't have to keep wearing the device if you're done, you've taught your brain how to listen, which is also why music instruction, I, I often ask people, have you ever played a musical instrument? And you know, a lot of people raise their hands and then I ask, well, how many are still playing? And not that many people do, but the benefits of having learned a musical instrument on the sound mind pays dividends 40, 50 years after the training is stopped. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know, we we, we think of reading as being a visual uh, learning activity, but of course it's probably more, the more critical component is, is hearing, not 
vision because seeing the shapes of the letters that's the easy part <laughs> that I don't think they too many people have difficulty with that but translating those symbols into sounds and also in order to let's say know how to translate a T versus a D you have to have the auditory discrimination of the two different sounds which as you mentioned earlier happened really fast so it's it's uh, I think probably really underappreciated how much uh, sound is involved well do you have any uh any other thoughts uh, maybe that we haven't uh, about sound that we haven't touched on yet? Um, I, I certainly would want to um, encourage any listener to go to our, our magical website, which is brainvaults.northwestern.edu. And um, one of the new things we've added to it is there's an icon on the homepage that is a tour bus. And if you click on that tour bus, you get a two minute tour um, that will help you find what you're looking for uh, on that website. Because there's a lot there that really is a, a labor of love that we add to every day. Um, and so in, in the spirit of communication, um, I'd love people to know about it. And I'd also love people write to me. Tell me if you read my book. Tell me what you think of it. If you, are, if you have a hearing loss, tell me how music plays in, 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 into your life with this hearing loss now. It, I, I learned so much from, from talking to people about sound because it turns out that we all care about many of the things that sound uh, is important for. Well, it's really clear that, uh, that you love what you do and you love what you study and that's, uh, you really have a passion for it and that's, that's really uh, contagious, I think. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel so lucky. I, I really do love what I do. And, and the team that I work with. I mean, the team at BrainVolts, uh, you know, people who I've worked with for 30 years, for 15 years, for 10 years. And um, we're really, you know, science, like, like the sound mind, uh, develops very slowly. It evolves. And to have a team like this that we have, have been able to evolve with the science to study interesting things. I, I feel I'm, I'm the luckiest girl. Right, wonderful. Well, Nina Krauss, uh, scientist, inventor, amateur musician who studies the biology of auditory learning and the author of Of Sound Mind. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Stuart, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.